We're not just a couple of middle-aged fat guys talking about classic rock. We're going bald, too. It's the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. And that's nothing but pure and simple old-fashioned communism. Some French critics called it disgusting, repellent, a cultural Chernobyl. But when I was there, I was as happy as a little girl. That's right. That's my gift to you. Can't no one compel another man to engage in recreation. Certainly not a son of a gun as ill-humored as you're safe. Winner of this week's Gulf Coast Golf Classic was Chai Chai Rotraguiz. There there's a rumor going around the circus that that dwarf and the elephant were lovers. I have wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with a whale. I done handcuffed lightning, throw thunder in jail. That's bad. Atomic batteries to power. Turbines to speed. I'd like to say something. There's no reason why you shouldn't have complete confidence in your chances to come out of this thing alive in one piece. From coast to coast, from border to border, from one end to the other, and all points in between, the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast is on. Yes! That's awesome! We crank up and break down the great guitar-driven rock of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And you are invited to come along. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. And now, your host, Jeremy Lunnan. Yeah, we don't know anything about that fellow there. Who is he? Where's he coming from? It's time for the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Well, it's about time. Welcome back. After, gosh, it's been like a four-month break sabbatical but i can't call it a sabbatical because it wasn't really a sabbatical it was just four months where i was not doing anything (laughs) welcome back to the classic guitar rock podcast i'm jeremy thank you for joining me and i'm so glad you're here and i'm so glad to be doing this when you've kind of put something off for a long time it's hard to get back in because you just well number one you feel bad you feel bad that I've I've let things slide so far. <laughs> but here I am. We're back and 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 we're going to be going strong with the podcast. I'm super excited about the topic of our discussion today. I'll be talking about white snake and I I got a lot to unpack with white snake. Also Before we get into that, I just want to kind of update you on the the channel a bit. One thing I've started to do on the YouTube channel is kind of do some classic rock updates where we talk about, you know, classic rock items in the news and that sort of thing. And I'm going to continue to do that and save the podcast for more long form type diving into albums or, or, or groups or whatever and not get so much into the daily classic rock updates. So so if you would, please check out the YouTube channel and then you can check out the daily, not daily, few times a week classic guitar rock updates where we'll be talking about that stuff. Now, having said that, I do want to just mention Motley Crue. (laughs) So Motley Crue... Uh, I'm recording this on the uh, 21st of April. Uh, and, and of course, Motley Crue has been in the news for good or ill for the last year or so with various things. The whole thing about Vince Neil 
being terrible live to uh, the first it was spun as a the retirement of Mick Mars. Come to find out it wasn't a retirement. It was uh, Motley Crue kicking him out of the band. John Five coming into the band. Then the claim Mick Mars made that he was the only one, only one playing live that Nikki and Tommy were playing to recorded tracks. And oh, that's been all kinds of Carmine Apice got involved at that point with and, and, and he was issued a cease and desist talking about how Mick had told him they were using recorded music. It's just been a big mess. So here's all I'm going to say about Motley Crue. You guys just fired the most talented member. Nothing against John Five. John Five's great. He's just a sideman. He's just a hired gun. So he doesn't really have anything to do with this. But you guys have just fired the t- most talented member of your band. And that's pretty much the common thread. I don't think anyone's on Nikki's side here. And it's been... Interesting to see how Nikki has kind of become public enemy number one because now I see other artists unloading on him and just talking about this pattern of behavior that he and Tommy, from the sounds of it, were just jerks, right? Just a-holes. And that seems to be the case in how they've treated Mick during this whole thing as well. So again, I know there's two sides to every story, but it, it does seem that that the public sympathy is definitely on Mick's side in all of this. I say it, it seems like I say it every episode, the social media world that we live in now means that all of this stuff happens in public now. You know, back in the 70s and 80s, we, we didn't know about all this stuff because there wasn't this whole stream of consciousness where you just post whatever you think all day long on the various social media platforms. Uh, you know, we're seeing it with Motley Crue now. We've seen it with Journey. We've seen it with Queensryche. We've seen it with Pink Floyd. We will continue to see this back and forth in the public, which is sad for us as fans because we don't want to choose sides. Right. We love bands because of their music, their catalogs. And it makes us sad when, when we see this rancor among the ranks of our favorite bands. So Motley Crue, just the latest, won't be the last. Godspeed to Mick Mars. And, you know, we'll see how this all plays out. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's talk White Snake right here on the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. The basement can be a lonely place. Yet, at the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast, the basement is all that Jeremy and John have. Their wives don't want them geeking out on classic rock in the living room. Can you blame them? But you can help. For as little as $3 a month, you can become a supporter on Patreon. Join today and end the cycle. Visit patreon.com slash classic guitar rock they'll still be in the basement 
but at least it's not your basement. Hello? Is anyone in here? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Please like, subscribe, and share. Welcome back to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. I'm Jeremy, and today we are talking about one of the one of the great, I think, hard rock bands of the 80s. Our topic today is White Snake. We've got an interesting history. A sordid history. Uh, some people accuse them of selling out. We've got a very big personality in the person of David Coverdale, who it's, I mean, it's his band, right? That was the whole reason for the band White Snake. So we're going to get into that and unpack that a little bit and talk about, you know, the, the good, the bad, and the ugly of the band White Snake. So to talk about White Snake, we really got to go back to the rock and roll family tree, right? What's at the base of the rock and roll family tree? Well, it's uh, Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. And White Snake, kind of like Rainbow, contains elements of Black Sabbath and Deep Purple in it. So let's just jump right in. So Deep Purple... Uh, the Mark II version of Deep Purple. That's the, that's the version we usually think of when we talk about Deep Purple. That's, uh, Richie Blackmore, Ian Gillen, Roger Glover, Ian Pace, John Lord. Okay. That's, that's the Deep Purple that most people think of, uh, when you talk Deep Purple. Smoke on the Water, you know, Woman from Tokyo, uh, Space Truckin', you know, all, all of that great stuff. That's Mark II. Well, around 1974, again, we're dealing with Richie Blackmore, a mer mercurial misanthrope, we could call him, right? Not necessarily the easiest guy to get along with. Everyone acknowledges a, a phenomenal talent, but there are also volumes written about how difficult he was to work with, and, and some people will just flat out say he was a jerk. So... Richie Blackmore and Ian Gillen famously did not get along. And finally, the time came that Ian Gillen left. And in 1974, a young singer named David Coverdale, who played in a few local bands, I believe he was what we call a haberdasher, right? He worked in like a men's clothing store for his day job, but was in a band, in a number of different bands. And he responded to an ad in Melody Maker that said Deep Purple was looking to replace, or looking for a singer to replace Ian Gillen. This is 74. So, I mean, that would be akin to, you know, in the 80s, a huge band 
Like Whitesnake, for instance, saying, hey, we're looking for a new lead singer or Van Halen saying, hey, we're looking for a new lead singer. So this is a I'm, I'm sure was a very coveted thing. Could you imagine if you're a singer in England and you know that that one of the biggest bands in the world is looking for a new singer? I'm sure there are lots of singers that were excited about this opportunity. Yet I don't find a whole lot of information about that. Again, if it were the social media era, we could find out lots. But David Gilmore was one of these interested parties. And incidentally, another person was joining the band at the time. That's Glenn Hughes. Glenn Hughes, also a great singer, but a bass player. So so at the same time, Coverdale and Glenn Hughes are coming into Deep Purple. This is one of the funny things about Richie Blackmore because the accounts I've read, he wanted to move away from the, 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 just the bluesy stuff and wanted to get a little more funky. And so he thought bringing in Glenn Hughes and David Coverdale would allow them to be a little, a little more funky. Glenn Hughes was a little more known. He had been in a band called Trapeze and David Coverdale, a little, little, uh, less known quantity. But obviously, Richie Blackmore saw something in Coverdale, so he was brought in. And so now we've got now two two great singers in the band. And their first album, <clears throat> Burn, is a really good album. And this song, the title track, Burn, may be my favorite Deep Purple song. Just a great song where you hear Coverdale and Glenn Hughes working together as this duo vocally. It's pretty powerful. That album was really good. Uh, of course, that the famous California jam from 74 or 75 where Blackmore sets the part of the stage on fire and all of that. Coverdale was there for all of that. So it's cool to go back and watch that time capsule footage of the California jam with Coverdale and Glenn Hughes and Richie Blackmore setting the place on fire and all kinds of stuff. It's, it's pretty fun. Coverdale was there for all that. Well, then... Coverdale, or not Coverdale, Richie Blackmore decides they're getting too funky, right? They did, they did two albums. They did Burn, they did Stormbringer. Following Stormbringer, uh, Blackmore leaves. And I think Blackmore assumed that was the end of Deep Purple, but they trudged on. They brought in another guitar player. Coverdale going to John Lord and Ian Pace and saying, Hey, let's continue this. Let's, let's bring this guy in. And this guy was Tommy Bolin, who had been in the James Gang. He'd been in some other projects and really a talented guy. So they bring Tommy Bolin in. They do the one album, Come Taste the Band. Not very successful commercially. Some people love it. Even more funky. And and remember, I told you Blackmore was intrigued by the idea of having Coverdale and Glenn Hughes because he thought they could be more funky. Well, then the reason he left is he thought they were becoming a funk band. <laughs> so whatever. So Richie's gone and they do the one album, Tommy Bolt with Tommy Bolin, come taste the band. They do a tour. That tour did not go well. Tommy Bolin, Glenn Hughes both had huge drug habits. That did not help. To make a long story short, after the tour was over, Coverdale submits his resignation only to find out from Ian Pace and John Lord that said, well, there's no band to, res to resign from because the band's done. We're done. We're all done. Ian and John, who are the only original Deep Purple members, they'd already decided that the band was done. 
They just hadn't told anyone. So then Coverdale's out of the band. And, and imagine he was a no, uh, a nobody. I hate to use the term nobody, but you know what I mean. Okay. He was an unknown. He got his big break with Deep Purple. And now all of a sudden, Deep Purple, who he'd been with for like three or four years now is no more. Kind of a scary situation. So Coverdale makes a, a, a little noticed solo project with a guitarist named Mickey Moody called White Snake. That's the name of his first solo album was called White Snake. And then he has a second album called North Winds in 78, which did a little better. And it was still Mickey Moody. And he puts together a, a backing band to promote his North Winds album. And, and again, context here. David Coverdale had just left one of the biggest bands in the world. And so now he's going out solo. So, so there's some expectations here. You know, he'd built up a, a pretty big following. And so now he's, he's pushing his solo stuff. He's put together this, uh, backing band that consists of Bernie Marsden. Bernie Marsden was the guitarist in UFO before Michael Schenker, uh, and Mickey Moody. Mickey Moody had helped him on his first solo album, and then they bring Marsden into the picture as well. And this basically became his his backing band, and they do this North Wind tour, if you want to call it that, promoting North Wind. And then they decide, hey, let's make this a full-time band, right? And so then it becomes White Snake, what they call White Snake, and they had a, an EP, uh, uh, which is an EP is an extended play, right? It's not a long play. It's a, it's a mini album, basically. They used to make a lot of EPs where if an album would have 10 songs on it, an EP might only have six songs on it or, or seven or eight or whatever. So they make their, their EP called Snake Bite, also released in 78. 78 was a very busy year for Coverdale. And then they just kind of progress from there. There's a certain amount of interest there. And then the first real album put out by White Snake was called Trouble. And there are various lineup changes, but, but by around the third album, I believe, which would be ready and willing, he's got John Lord in the band keyboards from Deep Purple and Ian Pace. And there were rumors that, hey, Deep Purple could be getting back together, right? Here's three members of Deep Purple. That was not the case, obviously. But but for a number of albums, he had John Lord and Ian Pace in Whitesnake. And they were having, starting to have some success. So for instance, uh, the 1980 album Ready and Willing had a song called Fool for Your Lovin', which might sound familiar. It reached number 13 on the British charts and uh, number 53 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. Okay. So Come and Get It follows that in 1981. And he took a little time off in 81 because his his daughter was sick and he needed to spend some time to to be with her. But then in 82, so he didn't take much time off, 
an album called Saints and Sinners is released. That's another, that's a good album. So the albums are, at least in my opinion, they're getting progressively better each time. They're getting more white snakey, what we think of as white snake with each successive release. It's a good album. And in fact, in 82, right after Dio left Sabbath, Sabbath was trying to get Coverdale as their lead singer. Could you imagine what that would have been like? And just ironically, who did they wind up? They didn't get Coverdale, but they wound up getting who? Ian Gillen for their next album, Born Again. So again, the Black Sabbath tendrils are, and Deep Purple tendrils are throughout this White Snake ancestry here, right? So by the early 80s, you know, they'd had some success in England. With this pretty stable lineup, you got Ian Pace, you got John Lord, you got Marsden and Moody, uh, and Coverdale, obviously. Sometimes the drummers might, well, Cozy Powell comes in at some point. When does he come in? He comes in early 80s. He's there for Slide It In. But anyways, in 1994 or, or 84, Snake, who'd had some pretty substantial success in Europe, uh, they were a big concert draw. Any of the European festivals Whitesnake was a part of, they had had some good opening, you know, support slots on tours in the States, opening for bands like Judas Priest and Iron Maiden. Then in 84, the album slided in. That was the first entry into the U.S. album charts. They reached number 40. Okay. Which is, which is a good showing, not a great showing. But it's at this time that Coverdale, so we're 84, they're getting some video play. I don't know if you remember the video for Slide It In, Slow and Easy, right? Those were all 84, 85 time frame on MTV. So Coverdale has a plan at this point. And again, this is Coverdale's band. You know, some people think he's heavy handed. Some people think he was conniving, whatever, but it, it is his band. It's kind of always been his band. His idea is we need to break it. We need to, we need to break big in North America, right? That's, that's the promised land. We haven't made it big there yet. And as part of his plan, he needs a different guitar player or guitar players. And so in 84, we see John Sykes. John Sykes is an interesting character, very important in this White Snake story. Okay. He had been in Thin Lizzy for the, well, until Phil Linett. That's not true. He left before Phil Linett died, but he had done a couple albums in the early 80s with Phil, Phil Linett. Here's the thing that Sykes brought. He was a phenomenal guitar player. I don't know if you've ever seen John Sykes. He's a good-looking dude. He's got stage presence. He's a great singer. Coverdale knew the power of video. And I'm trying to choose my words carefully here. Okay. If you, if you look, if you look at, at Mick Moody and Marsden, great guitar players, not handsome dudes. Okay. Not video friendly dudes. Neil Murray, the bass player, 
uh, he's okay. You know, he's been in a, a different bands. He had a good, good stage presence, good looking dude, but Moody and Bernie Marsden were just not photogenic guys. Okay. So all of a sudden there's a change. Uh, and, and that's not the only reason that they left. Um, Moody had financial issues with the band. Apparently he had a problem not getting paid. <laughs> and so he was ready to go anyway. So Moody leaves Marsden. I think, I, I don't know that he left on his own, but, but the, the grand scheme was we need to get Sykes. And so Coverdale talked John Sykes into doing it. The slided in album, much of it had been recorded already, but a lot of the songs were redone. There were U.S. versions that were redone with with uh, John Sykes playing on them instead of Marsden and Moody. So slided in was the the entree into North America in a much bigger way. So there was some success there. There's some cool footage on YouTube of this uh, slided in period where it's Sykes and Cozy Powell and Neil Murray, and, and they were a tight band, great live band. I think John Lord is still actually in the band at this point, but he leaves right after slided in. So there's a writing relationship between Coverdale and John Sykes, but I'm not sure if they were really, um, if they got along that well. So the album, of course, that, that put them over the top in the U S was that white snake 87 album that is just called white snake, right? That's the one with Tawny Katane dancing on the Mercedes or the BMW, whatever it is, right? The here I go again video, the is this love video in the still of the night, you know, all that stuff we saw on MTV in 1987. That's the album that put him over the top. That's all John Sykes. However, if you look at the back of the album, you don't see John Sykes. You see Adrian Vandenberg. You see Vivian Campbell, who had just left Dio. You see Tommy Aldridge, who'd been with Ozzy. You see Rudy Sarzo, who'd been with Ozzy. Okay. I mean, if you were going to put together in the mid eighties, if you're going to put together an all-star supergroup lineup, that's pretty much it right there. And Coverdale had it. But most people don't realize none of those guys played on the album. Adrian Vandenberg actually played a few guitar. He did a solo for the U.S. version of Here I Go Again or, or Is This Love? One of those two. I don't remember which one. So he did that. But see, by this time, Coverdale was already in his mind, getting rid of Sykes. Why? Why is that? Sykes was very talented. Sykes was a great writer. He was a great guitar player. And so people speculate that maybe Coverdale was threatened by Sykes, that it's Coverdale's band. He wanted it to be his band. He didn't want it to be a partnership. It was his band, right? Whatever the reason, Sykes was out. In fact, Adrian Vandenberg tells a story of he shows up to the studio. He's going to do some stuff, play this guitar solo on one of the songs for the U.S. version of, of one of the singles. And Sykes shows up while he's there. And I mean, he's, he's eyewitness to this 
it wasn't physical, but almost physical altercation between Sykes and Coverdale. There's also a story that Sykes sees Coverdale leaving the studio later and follows him in his car and is chasing him around and trying to catch him. And <laughs> Coverdale's like basically like just trying to get away from this guy. So anyway, let's just say it was not a good split. It was not a friendly divorce between Coverdale and Sykes for whatever reason. I don't know all the details. So they've got this huge album in the can, this 87. They brought Adrian Vandenberg in to put a few guitar parts on. This is an interesting thing. Dan Huff. Remember the band Giant in the late 80s, early 90s? A phenomenal band. Dan Huff was a first call studio guy. Dan Huff was a guy they brought in to do some guitar work on this album as well. I can't remember the songs. And he says it was very basic stuff. I mean, he said it was like adding 16th note, you know, muted rhythm parts, just chunking on chords, right? In some, a few places. So it wasn't anything major, but it's stuff that needed to be done. And of course, Sykes was out of the picture, so they had to get someone to do it. And Coverdale kind of floated. I don't know if Coverdale did or a producer, someone involved with the project floated the idea to Dan Huff. You know, what, what, what would you think about being in White Snake? And he said, you know, the guy you need is John Sykes. <laughs> Cause he had just been hearing all this stuff that Sykes did and thought it was awesome. He's like, man, that guy's incredible. And he is. John Sykes, unbelievable, unbelievable. But Dan Huff did come in and do a little work. So now they've got this album, which will become known as White Snake 87. They got it ready to go, but they don't really have a band. So that's when they put the calls out, right? Let's, let's draft this all-star band, which will include Adrian Vandenberg, who's already kind of brought into the picture by now, but now Vivian Campbell, Rudy Sarzo, Tommy Aldridge. And I believe Don Airy even does some keyboards. So it's, it's literally an all-star hard rock band. None of these guys had met until they got together for the video shoot for Here I Go Again. Okay. They, they hadn't even met each other. And so they all get together and lip sync for this video and do all their rock star moves and stuff, but they'd never played together. And that was the end. That was the U.S. big reveal were those videos that featured that all-star lineup, none of them ha having played on the album. Incidentally, Tommy Aldridge and, and Rudy Sarzo never played on the Aussie albums either, but people think they did. They played on the tours. Tommy Aldridge played on uh, Bark at the Moon, but neither of Rudy or Tommy ever played on Diary of a Madman, even though they're on the album cover. They never played on it. Similar situation here. They go out, they do a tour. The tour is very successful. Uh, everyone loves the album. It, sell, it goes, you know, to, I don't know, 10 times platinum or something. So lots of massive sales, uh, huge production. You know, I never saw, I didn't see this tour. I, I bet it was really good. I mean, you've got Vandenberg and Vivian on guitars. They're both awesome. But there were issues on the tour. The issues were not really among the band members. It was among wives or girlfriends. 
of the band members. So apparently Vivian Campbell's wife at the time and Tawny Katane, David Coverdale's wife or girlfriend, I don't know if they were married yet, but they were a pair. Vivian's wife and Coverdale's wife could not get along. And I don't know the details, but it got so bad that Vivian's wife wasn't allowed to to, to tour with the band, right? To be on the bus or the planes or whatever. And that had to be awkward, right? Well, to make a long story short, by the end of the tour, Vivian left and he cites, you know, a lot of that difficulty between the wives as a problem. And to be honest, Vandenberg, both of these guys were used to being the only guitar player, right? They were both used to being the sole guitar player. And Vandenberg coming in, uh, had the understanding that he would be the only guitar player. I think they made it work personality wise. I don't, I don't think Vivian and Adrian ever didn't get along, but I, I, I don't think Vivian ever really gelled with the group. A lot of it because of the issue with his wife at the time and Tawny Katane. And anyways, all of that caused problems. After that, well, it was time to make another album. You know, so they took it, took a couple years off. So 89, 90, somewhere around there. Uh, it's time for a follow up album. And, and at this point now, Adrian and Coverdale are the writing team. They're putting songs together. I think Adrian's assuming now, okay, okay, it's back to, back to me as a guitar player. This is great. So they're working on stuff. Well, he gets injured. He doesn't, he doesn't get injured, but an, an injury actually that was a result of a car wreck way back in 1980 kind of resurfaces and he's needs surgery on his hand. And so he records much of the album that would, that would become slip of the tongue, but then has to take months or year off as he recuperates. Coverdale calls Steve Vai. Now, Steve Vai had just come off of the David Lee Roth show, right? So he, he, he was in the process of making his Passion and Warfare album. He had some name recognition of his own. He had been in the movie Crossroads. So his star had risen. So he's a pretty marquee player. Coverdale convinces him to come in and play on this slip of the tongue album. So he comes in. Basically, <laughs> poor, poor Adrian. Uh, he basically re-records everything that, that Adrian Vandenberg had done. And you can hear Steve Vai's fingerprints all over this album. You know, funky. And I love Steve Vai, but Steve Vai is not a traditional, you know, hair metal, hard rock guitarist. You hear his unique interpretations throughout. It's a good album. It doesn't do as well as White Snake 87. And then, you know, once the album comes out, it's time to tour again. Adrian Vandenberg is now able to, to play. He's recovered and he comes back. And again, I, I get the impression Adrian or Adrian Vandenberg's a pretty easygoing guy because he's hung, he's stuck through all of this, right? He's, you know, had people record over his stuff, thought he was going to be the only guitar player. Yeah. So he, I think he must be pretty easy to get along with. So they do this, uh, slip of the tongue tour 
and the the Donington, the Monsters of Rock. You've probably seen that that tour from ninety or ninety one. It's just a great over the top eighties hair metal show. You got Steve Vai, you got Adrian Vandenberg, Rudy Sarzo, Tommy Aldridge. I mean, it's I mean, it's the pinnacle of hair metal at that point, and it's a really good show. I love to go back and watch that. And it's just, it's the peak of that era. And you you got to keep historical perspective. You know, in, in another year or two from that time, this hair metal stuff is gone. It's all been replaced by the Seattle scene, by by grunge, right? So, so this literally is kind of the pinnacle of this, melodic hard rock hair hair metal whatever you want to call it period and this was on display the zenith of talent right white snake it really is a good show and the tour was phenomenal very successful and there's more white snake history since then but in terms of you know i used the word zenith earlier this was the zenith right this was the zenith actually that the 87 album was the zenith in terms of albums but in terms of performing i think this donnington era in in the 1991 is really the zenith and kind of an end of an era not just for white snake but for this this melodic hard rock that was so popular i mean who you you couldn't have convinced me or anyone that two years from now, none of these bands will be popular anymore, right? You, no way. They were so huge and massive. But that's kind of the way it played out. After this period, David kind of walked away. Uh, the band was kind of done after this slip of the tongue tour. David took a little time off. He did the Coverdale Page project in 94, which was actually very popular. A lot of people loved it, but they also got some flack for it. Uh, many people thought that, you know, Coverdale was just a Robert Plant wannabe. And uh, <laughs> one of the great lines, Robert Plant referred to David, David Coverdale as David Cover Version, which I thought that's pretty. <laughs> it's funny, but, uh, you know, maybe there's some truth there. But let's, let's flash forward. There have been a few times in the 90s that they'd come together uh they did it like a in the late 90s they did kind of a white snake thing with rudy and and tommy and adrian and they did a tour and that was about it right and then they'd break away again and since the early 2000s white snake has continued on as an entity with various changes very talented lineups by the way uh joel hoekstra is currently in the band reb beach who was in winger has been in the band for quite a while doug aldrich was in there in the uh you know early 2000s so there's always been a lot of talent in the band and coverdale is just one of the premier showmen i mean he's he's born in 51 so what does that make him 72 years old He's had some health issues. Tommy Aldridge had some health issues that that kind of put some shows on hold uh, in recent years. But while while White Snake hasn't maintained its you know glory that it had in the eighties, there's a really good body of work there. 
really good body of work. I think Coverdale's a talented guy. I think he's surrounded himself with talented people and he's written some very good, catchy, melodic hard rock. It's interesting to hear the transition from the early White Snake albums where they've got some boogie woogie piano blues type songs on them, which I'm not a big fan of, clear up to the slickly produced, glossy, great vocals, great guitar sound, great production sound on the 80s white snake stuff it's 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 all good it's all good so i'd love to hear your thoughts shoot me an email classic guitar rock at mail.com and as always if you'd like to support us on patreon you can do that and guys it's been so good to get back with you and do an episode i'd love to hear from you and thanks so much for checking out this episode of the classic guitar rock podcast we'll see you bye-bye Thanks for listening to the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. Oh, sweetie! Please like, subscribe, and share. You can email us at classicguitarrock at mail.com. We're not ordinary people. <laughs> We're morons. We'll see you for the next episode of the Classic Guitar Rock Podcast. <laughs>